All right, it's good to see more more faces come in. Welcome, welcome to Drisha Zell Minis Mod. We're, it's good to see some new names. Good to see some familiar names. And for the people who, for the for the new names, welcome. And for the familiar names, it's glad to have you back. All right, and we are also, and to those of us watching on, and to those watching on Facebook Live, also welcome. It's good to, I may not be able to see you on the, see you, but I'm glad to have you here. Please feel free to, to answer any questions for Rabbi Zuckier. I will, in the chat, ask, please ask them in the chat. I will read them to out at various points. Questions, comments, thoughts. And with that, Rav Shlomo, good, good evening. All right. So yeah, I guess we'll get started. And uh, as as always, um, it's good to see the familiar faces. Good to see some some new people. Uh, and uh, everyone's always welcome to uh, keep their cameras on to try, even though we're remote here, to try to be as interactive as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, and feel free to uh, to raise questions uh, in the tech in the in the chat, or uh, you know, raise your physical hand or whatnot, or your virtual hand throughout. So our, our goal for the next few weeks is to explore really the trio of terms that, that come up very frequently over the Yamim Noraim, the three terms of uh, Mechila, Slicha, and Kapar. And probably if you ask the average person, uh, they would say that uh, you know, they're all basically the same thing. But uh, I think we're going to see there's, there's some very important differences between those terms as they develop from Tanakh through Chazal, through our, our uh, prayer book, through the Siddur. And, uh, and there are also will be some important philosophical ideas that, uh, that come from that. And uh, so our, our goal will be to explore, to explore that over uh, the next three weeks. Today, we're going to focus on the relationship between Slicha and Kapara. Uh, sorry, yes, between Slicha and Kapara. And uh, we'll focus on that, and the next next uh, week we'll bring in Mechila, and then the final week we'll, we'll take stock of everything uh, from a more philosophical angle. So that's, uh, that's our story, and uh, as we're going to see, each of these terms has a particular history, has a particular valence, and, uh, and that really colors what it means. Before we get into uh, the rest of it, before we get into the details, it's worth noting that um, we're not talking about tshuva meaning not, not that we have anything against it. Tshuva is very important, and this is certainly tshuva season, but, uh, but tshuva is, is different than these phenomena. Tshuva, is, repentance, is what we do, what a person does to try to come closer to Hashem, whereas the processes of mechila, slich, and kapara are really the other direction, right? Are where God forgives in one way or another or atones for us. Uh, it's almost the, the you know, the, you know if, if there's an idea of shuva alai v'ashuva aleichem, uh, right, we, we're expected to return to God and God will return to us. So tshuva is usually the language used uh, when thinking about us returning to God and mechila, slicha, and kapara is the other side of that, is where God returns back to us. Um, so, so yeah, we're not going to be talking much about tshuva, which is, you know, again, we can save that for another another Elul maybe. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but we're going to be focusing on our terms. And again, today, on Slicha and Kapara. I'm going to share the screen now um, to, uh, to, to be able to look at the handout together. And 
again, this shouldn't hold you back from uh, you know raising questions and whatnot. We're, we're trying to keep it interaction. So actually, we'll start. Is there? Does anyone have any questions or thoughts so far? Um, or uh, did, I, did I? Hopefully, I didn't say anything too scandalous yet. But uh, in case I did, uh, you know, it's always open for questions. If not, um, let's jump into the handout. So we'll uh, we'll start we'll start with a what seems like an innocuous enough pasuk. In Vayikra, and there's there's really a good half dozen psukim just like this, at the end of a, of a carbon chatas, right, an offering brought in response to sin. The kohen, the priest, does to this ox what uh, one would do, what, what one does to the parachatas. He does the same thing here. Now this, we're gonna have to look carefully at both of the verbs here, right? The kohen is mechaper. For them, the Kohen, if you translate Mechaper as to atone, the Kohen, the priest atones for him, and uh, they are forgiven, right? The, the sinners are, uh, in, in this case, are forgiven. It's forgiven for them. So first of all, why, you know, this, this uh, the way we usually think about the term Kapara, usually we think about Kapara as coming from God. We'll see there's a good reason for that. But in Sefer Vayikra, in the central discussion of the Karbanos, of the sacrifices that atone, it's usually the Kohen, the priest, that's doing the kapara, and uh, that's doing this thing that, that we usually call atonement. So what's that all about, number one? Number two, vinislach lahem is oddly in the passive, right? The nifal, uh, for those who know a little grammar. So why is it it's forgiven for them? Who's doing the forgiving, right? Is it, is it the Kohen we just mentioned? Is it some other being, maybe God? But it doesn't say that. Why doesn't it say vashem yislach lahem? So it's a little unusual and, and again, this repeats itself over and over. I didn't give all the examples because it gets repetitive. We'll see a couple more as we go through it. But it's a bit of an odd, uh, compared to how we think about uh, what kapara is and what slicha is, this is a little unusual. Now, the translation here uh, that I gave, I didn't translate lechaper as to atone, but rather effect purgation for. That's not how most people translate it. But that follows the analysis of Jacob Milgram. Uh, the uh, great, I wrote this uh, really uh, manifesto of a commentary on Vayikra, thousands of pages long. And uh, on his understanding, Kapara in Sefer Vayikra, in the, the, the biblical des description of sacrifice, actually is something pretty different than when we think about it. So, uh, and, and we'll, we'll read a couple of passages uh, of his and, and try to bear out his understanding of what Kapara is uh, from reading a Pasuk. So he says, when the object of Kiper is a person, sin is it defiles the temple and especially the innermost parts of the temple the Mizbeach, the altar the Kodesh Kadashim uh, the greater the sin the more the more it penetrates the temple and defiles it and what one does when bringing a carbon there's different types of carbonos different types of sin offerings some uh, only treat the Mizbeach, the altar in the courtyard for more minor sins and what they do is they cleanse the altar of the sin they remove this miasma this this, uh, you know, ickiness that comes from the sin, from the Mizbeach. And if it's a more severe sin, this is what you do in Yom Kippur. You go all the way inside to the Kodesh Kodashim. You put some blood on, on the paroches and you remove the effects of sin from the Kodesh Kodashim. So based on this, what he's saying here is that the direct object of Kaper is actually not people, but the, the Kodesh, the different sancta, the different holy things, the Mizbeach, the paroches, the Beis HaMikdash, because what you're doing is you are cleansing sin by putting blood on 
these uh, on these areas of the mikdash, and you're removing this miasma, this this uh, this residue of sin that sticks itself to the mikdash. And if you don't do that, Hashem becomes uh, can't abide that anymore and moves out and usually destroys uh, destroys uh, you know, the the temple and uh, and maybe even the whole the you know the whole uh, settlement in the land of Israel. So that's that's this idea of how sin works. It's a really fascinating idea. It lines up with the psukim, and because of that. The Kohen is mechaper the Mizbeach. The Kohen, by putting blood on the Mizbeach, blood has the power of life and it has the power to cleanse. Um, it, the blood cleanses the Mizbeach from our sins. So that is kapara in, in uh, Milgram's theory. We'll just read source four. He spells it out a bit further. Whom or what does the Chatat urge? Herein lies the first surprise. It's not the offer of the sacrifice. Um, and the, right, the point about al Ba'ad. It's on behalf of uh, the offerer. But what's actually being uh, being atoned or being compared? What uh, what is the object of chatat purgation? And he says the above considerations lead to only one answer: that which receives the purgative blood, the sanctuary and the sancta, right? The kodesh and the the and the mizbeach and the other things in the mikdash. That's what is mechupar by daubing the altar with the chatat blood, or by bringing it inside the sanctuary. The priest purges the most sacred objects in areas of the sanctuary on behalf of the person who caused their contamination by his physical impurity or inadvertent offense. Um, and so the way, the way Chatas works is you sinned, you caused the Mikdash to become defiled, the Kohen cleanses the Mikdash, kaper, uh, and th that on your behalf, that's be'ad, on behalf of the sinner or the person who was mitame the Mikdash, it resolves what they did. This is Milgram's uh, widely accepted theory of atonement. There are some indications that uh, Rashi in a few places uh, says similarly, this is the uh, the mizbeach uh, in a mizbeach achitzon, where you put the blood from the the, the standard chatas. The uh, that that's what he's talking about. In this passage and other passages, you go inside uh, further inside, but this is the this is a more minor sin. Uh, so this is the outside mizbeach. Um, let's read source number three, a, a really the central among the central psukim on the Yom Kippur avoda on what the Kohen Gadol does in Yom Kippur. As and of course Yom Kippur, Kippur uh, means this idea of atonement or purgation, however you want to refer to it. So what exactly is being kapered? So it says v'chiper al hakodesh, right? The Kohen, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, kiper atones, purges on the kodesh from on the holy things or in the holy things. Me from meaning what he's removing, what he's cleansing from the kodesh is me tumos b'nei Israel from the the impurities. Of the Jewish people, and for all of their sins, their their rebellions for their sins. So, meaning both impurity and sin is cleansed from the mizbeach uh, and from the mikdash, really the kodesh, right? Because in the Yom Kippur, he goes all the way into the kodesh, kodesh kodashim, is cleansed by the kohen gadol. Right? He does the same for the olmoid, the tent of meeting, more broadly. And we say, no one should be inside olmoid at this time. I'd say so when the Kohen enters to atone or to purge the Kodesh until he leaves. Who is the Kohen? The Kohen Gadol is being Mechaper, the Mizbeach, and the Olmoed, and the Kodesh. But who is he doing it for? Who is he doing it on behalf of? That's Vichiper Ba'ado, Uv'ad Beso, Uv'ad Israel, on behalf of himself, meaning because he probably sinned, uh, maybe ritual sins, maybe some other things. Uh, on behalf of his household, and which was understood, uh, you know, may include the Kohanim, and for the whole nation, 
right? He's atoning on their behalf by, by doing this uh, blood ritual. So this is how Kapara works on Milgram's understanding. And again, there are indications that Rashi uh, thinks similarly, and there are indications that Chazal do too. It's, it's not never said explicitly like this, but the, there are strong indications that really comes out of the, the psukim as well, meaning chaz, that the Chazal are aware of, of, uh, of this approach. So that, that is Kapara, right? And so if, if we're thinking like that, Kapara is very different than when we think about it now. You know, Hashem is mechaper you, Hashem atones your sins, Hashem cleanses your sins, reconciles with the sinner. This is pretty different than that, right? I mean, maybe that's the ultimate result, but the direct process of Kapara is not by Hashem to you uh, through some metaphysical action, but it's by the Kohen to the Mizbeach with blood. It's a very different process. Right, but this is where kapara comes from, uh, biblically. This is the biblical, you know, the what you might say, the pshat, the straightforward biblical understanding. Uh, certainly, if you're thinking about vayikra, of how kapara works. Now we can contrast this to uh, slicha, right? What's this idea of slicha and how that works? So first of all, we saw in source number one, often it's associated with kapara, right? The kapara process by the kohen leads to slicha, leads to this forgiveness. Uh, we might call it, or maybe pardon is a better word, right? Being nislaf is being pardoned. It, it does come up in sacrificial contexts, but it also comes up a fair amount outside of the context of sacrifice, right? So uh, an important passage here, and this is Moshe arguing on behalf of the Jewish people, God, may you forgive or pardon our iniquities and our sins and make us your inheritance, right? This is, it comes up in many different biblical narratives that people are asking God for, uh, for slicha, forgiveness or pardon, or it's offered. Um, it comes up, we'll see more examples later, but this comes up fairly frequently. And it seems pretty clear from all these contexts that the way to understand slicha is, you know, in the more straightforward sense of to forgive, to pardon, right? If one person wrongs another person, they can be soleach. Right, just like in modern Hebrew, you say slicha. Uh, you know, some people, it's less, maybe not the most common in uh, modern Israeli culture, but in theory, you say slicha. Right, excuse me, pardon me. Right, it's an interpersonal. I mean, that's for a minor thing. If you do something really bad, then you know you uh, you'd have to really uh, really lean harder on that slicha. But that's what it means. It's an interpersonal. Uh, it's an interpersonal uh, pardon or or an apology. You know, the response to an apology would be slicha, and that's how it often figures in biblical narrative outside the context of sacrifice. So the question we're going to, what, what, what we're gonna explore and what comes out very interestingly is that there's this association, both we saw this in source number one, we'll see it here again in source number six. The Kohen purges or atones or cleanses with this, in this case it's the El Hashem using the blood of the uh, guilt offering for the sin. Right, for the person's sin. So that's stage one. The Kohen does kapara. And then, v'nislachlo mechatasoh asher And then the, the sinner is, nislach is pardoned, is forgiven for their sin. So the, the question we're going to have is, what is the relationship between kapara and slicha? Right? We know who does the kapara, the Kohen. Who does the slicha? It's, it goes unstated. It's passive. Right? So that's, that's a little unusual. And again, you can say it means Hashem's doing it, but to what extent is it separable from the kapara? Is it that if the Kohen does these ritual acts, automatically you get slicha, you get, you get pardoned by God? 
or you know, for your sin? Um, or is there sort of a two-step process? Step one, the coin goes through the motions. That's very nice. That's a, a requisite. That's a necessary step, but not necessarily a uh, sufficient one, right? So maybe the Kohen does these actions, and then God has a choice to be soleach or not to be soleach. Maybe it depends on uh, on uh, you know how how you've been behaving religiously. Who knows? So it's not exactly clear. It doesn't say anything about that. It leaves it sort of open, right? It says the Kohen does kapara, and then you get slicha. It's almost like a one-two. Maybe it's automatic. But maybe there's some additional stage here. Um, so uh, Milgram has has a take, and I, I don't think you can really prove this one way or another. But his view is, whereas the high priest is the agent of purgation, right, of kapara, the verb is pl, active, right? The coin is making this uh, purgation, this kapara happen. The Lord alone is the agent of forgiveness. Hence, the verb is nifal, passive. Milgram has this theory that you know you don't want to, you never want to say you know that God is doing something too directly. That's like you know. Uh, uh, you know, it's impolite. It's almost like it's you don't want to speak on behalf of God. But if you say it in the passive, it's clear that God's doing it. I think he calls it the divine passive. So maybe that's a little, you know, maybe cheating a little bit because, I mean, it could just be that it's an automatic stage or that, we're, you know, uh, the Torah is intentionally not emphasizing the divine role. But this is how this is how uh, Milgram uh, reads it, that, uh, right, the Kohen does what the Kohen does. God does what God does. Theoretically, God could choose not to be soleach. But uh, it's associated, it reads as if it's a, it's a two-step process, one-two. That is the relationship between slicha and kapara, uh, biblically speaking, right? They both appear in these ritual contexts. Not exactly clear what the relationship is between the two of them. But uh, a slicha comes up in many other narrative contexts where it's really the idea of pardoning someone. Um, and kapara comes up a little bit too, but much more focused in the ritual context. And... Um, and the question is, what exactly is the relationship between here? If, if kapara means using these ritual means to purge the temple of the miasma of sin, and slicha is more interpersonal, um, how much of a connection is there? Uh, how much? How much of a uh, possibility of uh, you know of blocking stage one and not doing stage two is there for God? That's not fully clear. So questions on on what we've seen so far on our layout of how slicha and kapara work. Uh, in, in, uh, in the Torah. I'm guessing for some of you, this is probably like a uh, totally new conception, a pretty different than, than what, uh, you know, what they teach in day school, let's say. I know it was for me when I first encountered Milgram. So, uh, um, okay, but maybe everyone, it's just so clear, Milgram's uh, theory is so, uh, so overwhelmingly convincing that it, that just makes a lot of sense to people. Um, so if there's no questions, then we'll move forward and, uh, and we'll move to Chazal, right? To the rabbis, how do the rabbis understand each of these terms? Do they mean the same thing in Chazal that they meant, uh, that they meant in the Torah? And I mean, the answer is probably gonna be no, because otherwise, why are we spending all this time on this? So yeah, that's the, that's the spoiler alert, that's the answer. It's gonna, we're gonna see significant differences in how each of these terms function, but it looks like there's a hand now. Uh, is it Lisa, is it? So I was just thinking of the priest's role and I'm thinking of the, the um, scale disease, you know. So, I mean, there's a, you know, other places in Vayikra, I mean, so the priest has a, a choice here, right? I mean, it's not, it's, I don't think the priest is working that automatically. I mean, so the automatic process has to start to some extent by a judgment made by the priests is my only thought. 
in the connection ah, interesting. between the two. Right. So, right. so let's say someone comes off as very insincere. Maybe the priest will say, you know, I don't think this is a good idea. But what if someone presents very uh, well, you know, presents very piously, but deep down, they don't mean it. They think it's all a sham. Uh, they plan to continue, uh, you know, eating their uh, forbidden fats going forward and or at least, uh, for, you know, forgetting conveniently uh, what, what's a forbidden fat, what's not and eating it. And uh, so they're not really repentant. Do they get atonement or not? Um, just because they have the kapara, do they automatically get the slicha? I'm not sure. But you are, you are at, you're, you're adding an important point that maybe part of the role of the Kohen is to decide whether to go forward in the first place, right? To do an initial judgment, see if the person's deserving. Interesting, yeah, interesting uh, thought. Okay, any other questions or uh, suggestions? If not, so let's jump in and look at how Chazal treats slicha and kapara. We can talk about kapara a bit later, but I think the more, the more surprising factor here is what, uh, what I call the disappearance of slicha in Chazal, right? If you look at the term slicha or the root, nislach, all of its forms, throughout Tanakh, it's a pretty robust term. It comes up a lot. But uh, as, and this is quoting from my uh, dissertation, I guess I've thought about this a little bit, but uh, if, you, if you look at the, at, the, at the places where the term itself comes up in Chazal, just about all of them are either citing a biblical verse, right? You cite the verse. You're not going to you're not going to miscite the verse. You have the phrase there, or you're paraphrasing a verse. There's almost no cases, certainly in Tanaitic literature and early rabbinic literature uh, and through the third century. There's almost no cases where the term slicha appears, meaning it's not a word that the rabbis say. Oh, this phenomenon is slicha, which is which is pretty unusual. Again, it's a it's a pretty central term. Like every you know every carbon chatas just about says that you get your nislach. What does that even mean? What does that, what does that stage correlate to? The rabbis don't have anything to say about it. We'll look at a couple of examples of uh, what the rabbis do when they, when they encounter this, uh, this phrase biblically, how they interpret it, and we'll see it's really, uh, really striking. So um, yeah, so let's, let's start here. Source nine, just to you know, uh, cite a Pasuk to set up our Chazal. So it says, uh, this is a, uh, an Asham, Right, right, a guilt offering. You bring a ram uh, without a blemish, a sheep has a certain value uh, as a as a guilt offering. You bring it to the kohen. Okay, the kohen, the kohen atones or purges the altar on your behalf. for the the inadvertent sin you committed, that you didn't realize, and then you're forgiven, you're pardoned after the kohen. Uh, you know, does this uh, purgation, cleanses the Mizbeach on your behalf. So again, we have the same question we had before. What is, you know, Kapara is what the Kohen's doing. Slicha is what happens to you as a result by God. What exactly is the relationship between these two? And when we look in Chazal, it's really fascinating how they understand this. They say, right from the end of the Pasuk, the case that he didn't know, he's forgiven. And how they, and they, they want to, as, as they often do, Chazal want to make a, a diuk, want to make a, uh, you know, to extract a legal point from this formulation. So they say, if he didn't realize, then he's forgiven. But if he did know, if he did know his sin, then he is not, he's not atoned. Now notice the jump here, right? Where the whole point here is to contrast, say, you know, if he didn't know, then A. 
If he did know, then not A, right? That's the logical structure of what they're doing here. The only difference is we shift from Nislach as our A to Miskaper. We just jumped, right? We said, if you didn't realize, then you're, then you're uh, pardoned. But if you did know, then you're not atoned, right? It, we just jumped. We're, it should have said, Ha'im yada ein Nislach, low, or something like that, low Nislach. Um, instead, we jump from Nislach to Miskaper. Really uh, fascinating shift. Right now, part of this is that the rabbis don't really like using the term Nislach at all, right? We're going to have to figure out why. Um, but what, what, what else does this imply? It really implies that there's some similarity, maybe even synonymy between Slicha and Kapara. The way the rabbis are treating these terms, they're basically equivalent. Right? If he didn't know, he's forgiven. If he did know, he's not forgiven or atoned or whatever it is. They all are the same thing. Right? That's how Chazal are treating this here. Let's move to the next example. We see something similar. Um, and uh, again, uh, another passage. Um, right? the, the priest purges the, uh, right, purges the, the altar and they are then forgiven. So how do they read this? And we're going to, again, learn out to derive various details. Apparently, and the Kohen purges on their behalf. This is valid, even if they didn't do the process of smicha, of laying the hands on the offering. And they're forgiven, or they're pardoned, even if they didn't throw the leftover blood. They only did the, let's say, the first throwing of blood, not the additional ones. Right? And then we go into some argumentation about this. But what, what's, what's important here is it's essentially treating the biblical sequence of kapara and then slicha, which again, biblically, kapara is done by the Kohen. Slicha is done by God, probably not stated who it's done by, but they seem like they're two separate stages. Here it's treating them like it's almost a redundancy, right? Each time you say it, you learn out one rule. V'chipera lehem, even though you don't do smicha. V'neslach lehem, even though if you didn't throw the leftover blood. If the verse had said v'chipera lehem, v'chipera lehem, v'chupar lehem, they just said the same term twice, we would have said the same thing. We're not distinguishing in any way kapara and slicha. And again, it really sounds like the rabbis are treating these as near synonyms. And if you go through all of Midrashe Halacha, right, all early uh, rabbinic analysis of, uh, or interpretation of Midrash interpretation of the Torah, you never find, at least I've been unable to find, I went through every case, it's impossible to find a novel usage of the term uh, slicha, that's not paraphrasing the verse, right? It's just not a category that the rabbis use. It's, it's vestigial, right? The Torah has it, so you need to use the term, you need to interpret it, but when it's interpreted, it's, it's usually interpreted as a synonym of kapara, not as its own thing, which is really fascinating because, you know, again, based on Milgram's theory, there's a big difference between kapara and slicha. They're done by different parties. One of them's a ritual act, the other one is a, uh, you know, a, a result, uh, restoring a relationship you would think that there'd be a different function within Chazal as well, but there isn't. If we look at the Mishnah and Tosefta, the closest thing to a legal code that exists among uh, early rabbinic literature, so there's only one case. It's really shocking. You search, if you go and do a search for the root Salah, um, you do a search for the root Salah throughout Mishnah and Tosefta, it appears a grand total of one time throughout this huge corpus. Again, and it appears 50 times in Tanakh, including in central sections about sacrifice, right? The rabbis have, you know, uh, hundreds of Mishnayos 
talking about different aspects of, uh, of, uh, of sacrifice, and even more Tosefta is doing the same. And the word, the word, uh, the word slicha appears exactly once. And I actually think it's a, uh, it's a, a, it's an issue with the, uh, with the manuscript. It's actually not original to the text, but we'll look at that right now. Um, so the, oh, I see we have, we have a, a hand and we have a question. So the question, I thought there are no synonyms in Judaism. Great, great uh, question. Um, there's a major debate among biblical commentators as to whether there are synonyms or not. So uh, generally, the way it breaks down is the more shot-oriented commentators say that there are synonyms, um, like, like in most languages, there are synonyms. Maybe there's a slightly different valence here or there, but there's, you know, very often there are synonyms. Um, whereas the more drosh-oriented approach, the more creative reading-oriented approach has as some uh, hermeneutical principle that there can be no synonyms, and that allows for uh, creative re-rendering of texts to get out of apparent repetitions. Um, so I think for our purposes, we're gonna work with the school that there can be synonyms. And I think we'll see in a moment uh, that in this case, Chazal, at least one view in Chazal is very clear that these will be synonyms, but uh, fair question. So the one, uh, the one case where, where we find the word slicha or any, anything with that root appearing in Mishnah or Tosefta goes back to this, uh, this passage, source 12, talking about the oaths uh, that a woman makes that can be undone by her father or husband. Uh, long, a big topic to discuss another time. But what's important for our purposes is um, if her oaths are undone, even if she doesn't follow them, it says, Vashem yislach lach, that uh, the Lord, Hashem, God, will forgive her. So that's obviously slicha. That's this root of forgiving or pardoning. It appears three times within a span of, of eight psukim here. And how do the rabbis understand it? So they, there's a few different passages where they interpret it, but we'll look at a couple of them. So it says, Vashem Yislachla, God will pardon her. What is that talking about? Harisha Nadra, she made an, a, a promise. Ubitlo Bilibo, and her husband, let's say, canceled it uh, in his heart, but he didn't tell her that he had canceled her oath. And then she intentionally violated her oath. So you would think the oath is undone. She didn't do anything wrong. She doesn't need to be forgiven. How do I know that she still needs to be pardoned? She still needs to be forgiven. That's why the verse says God will forgive her because she still needs to be forgiven. Right? That's what the verse means. Again, this is one of the cases where the rabbis have the term slicha and they need to interpret it. So that's how they understand it. Right? In a case where she knew that her oath was undone, if she violates it, she's not violating it. There's no oath to violate. There'd be no need for uh, forgiveness at all. Fine, that's one example. But notice what happens here. Uh, a few lines later, It's comparing two different cases. Someone who gets confused between kosher meat and non-kosher meat versus someone who intended to eat non-kosher meat. And it says, you know, obviously, it's if you need to be forgiven, you need to be pardoned for eating inadvertently, not kosher, certainly for eating not kosher intentionally, you, you would need forgiveness. But what it does is it sneaks in here, instead of using this phrase, sricha slicha, right, which comes out of the verse of Vashem Yislachla, that, that she would need, uh, that she would need pardon. Instead, it says, sarich kapara uslicha, right, it sneaks in kapara, one needs to be uh, one needs to be both get kapara, atonement, let's say, and slicha, forgiveness or pardon. So it only makes sense to sneak sneak this in, have this phrase of kapara uslicha, if kapara and slicha are very close, uh, either synonyms or, or you know, the next closest thing 
two synonyms. And the, this phrase, um, as we find it in Tosefta of Nazirus, again, it's, it's formulated slightly differently, but at the end it says, Sarek kapara uslicha. And now the kicker is, this is in the printed edition of, of the Tosefta. If you look in the manuscripts, the manuscripts all have Sarek kapara, but they don't mention slicha. Right? The word slicha does not appear actually in the original text anywhere in the Mishnah or Tosefta. So what do we see here? We see here a two-stage process. Number one, throughout the Midrash Halacha, throughout the rabbinic interpretation of the Torah, there's a move to avoid talking about slicha at every turn, right? And the only time it comes up is if the verse already says slicha, you need to interpret it. You can't really avoid it because it's Midrash is a biblical commentary. Once you get to Mishnah and Tosefta, which are not biblical commentaries, but are uh, freestanding compositions, what ends up happening is, you know, even if in the Medrash that, that uh, the Tosefta is working with, it says, Sarech kapara uslicha, when you get to the Tosefta, it erases the slicha and it leaves just the Tzarech kapara. And, you know, uh, uh, funny enough, someone in a later uh, edition of the Tosefta, in the, in the printed edition, snuck in the word slicha again, maybe based on the Sifrei. But what's clear is, uh, what's clear, and, and the reason he was able to do that is because he saw them as synonymous. So, and you know, a, a chart showing how the process may have happened for those who want to think about it more uh, a bit later. But for our purposes, we have, uh, we've seen two main points here. Number one, that slicha really falls out of rabbinic literature. The rabbis minimize how much they use it when they have to, when they're commenting on verses that have slicha, okay, they'll use it, but often they'll use it just to mean kapara. There's a real blending of kapara and slicha. And what's true, what we've seen until now in, in the Tanaitic literature, in the early rabbinic literature, third to through, third to through the third century CE, is also true to a large degree in, uh, in Amoraic literature, in the Talmuds. So the root salach only appears in 13 Yerushalmi and 21 Bavli passages. And just keep in mind, you know, the Bavli is over 2 million words. Yerushalmi itself is very long. You know, that's a small number of cases given how, how important it is throughout Tanakh. And in many of these cases, they're just citing biblical verses. They're not really engaging the material in a positive way. We'll see there's one context where they actually do significantly engage these materials. We'll see this in a bit. But before we do that, just to make it clear that, uh, you know, this analysis is not off base and actually, actually Chazal very much agree with it. So, uh, so this uh, next source, the Gemara in Zvachim, right? Talmud Bavli, Babylonian Talmud, redacted around the year 600 or so, uh, depends who you ask. Um, so it, there's a discussion there about, uh, about how to read the Pesukim, how many times you need to throw blood on the Mizbeach for a chatas. Really, you're supposed to do, uh, it says you're supposed to do it four times. Uh, we learned that out, but, but only one time is really necessary, right? So av chata shenasna matana achas, or shenitna matana achas kiper. Right in a chatas, even though it's supposed to, you're supposed to throw the blood four times. If you did it only once, that also works. Why? Talmud Lomar, the chiber, chiber, chiber. It says the word the chiber three times, and each time takes off uh, one necessary throwing of blood. So you need four ideally, but in practice, each time it says the chiber, it teaches uh, you know minus one. So that's why you end up you only need one. But then the Gemara asks, behind me lagufe. How do I know that you need a throw the blood at all, that you need to purge the altar at all. Um, you need some word to teach us that. And the answer is, what word teaches us that? The word vinislah. So this is where Rava comes in. This is a key line. Amar Rava, 
right? The great Amora Rava says, Bar Adam Mari Asperali, Bar Adam, my master, explained to me, Amar Kra Vichiper Vinislach, right? All the Pesukim we saw before, right? The verse says, and he purges, right? The coin, the priest purges on the altar, and he, the sinner, is atoned. What does that mean? Zohi Kapara, Zohi Slicha. Kapara is slicha. They are the same thing. They are synonyms, right? This is the this is the best way of saying kapara and slicha are synonyms. Uh, the best way you can say that in uh, Talmudic Hebrew is what Rava just said: zohi kapara, zohi slicha. So I think um, having looked at what we've seen, uh, you know, Rava Rava read the same Tanaim that we read, right? Rava read the same Tanaim that we read, and it's clear the way and or gets Bar Ada who explained it to him. It's clear the way Chazal used the phrase. Kapara and the phrase slicha, they're essentially synonymous. Now, the question we have to figure out is what does this tell us about the meaning of kapara and the meaning of slicha? Okay, so they're they're synonymous. They've moved towards one another. How uh, how does uh, how does this work? What does each term actually mean? And so I think what we need to what we need to do, and you know, I think if we had more time, uh, there's there's a, a broader analysis to do in terms of how the term kapara itself shifts in rabbinic literature. But you'll have to take my word for this because we don't have time to go through the primary sources now. Um, but what comes out, if you look at how the term kapara is used in Chazal, and this correlates with how we tend to think of it, is even in the context of sacrifice, Chazal move kapara away from being something done by the Kohen on the Mizbeach. Instead, the term kapara is used uh, to refer to what God does to the sinner and the sin, right? So Hashem removes the sin of the sinner, and we sort of cut out the middleman, right? If the way the, the way Vayikra presents it, right, you have a carbon, the Kohen takes the blood, puts it on the Mizbeach, and that is like some sort of virtual action that absolves the sinner of the sin on, on behalf of God, right? There's somehow, um, right, the Kohen, uh, the Kohen represents the sinner, the Mizbeach represents God, something like that, and, and this process happens by proxy. The way Chazal used the term kapara, of course, Chazal don't suggest that uh, we, you know, the process of Kabbalah would change. It's exactly the same as how the Torah presents it. But the way the language is used, kapara is often used to talk about a person having their sin be resolved, right? Instead of the Mizbeach, instead of the virtual process, it sort of cuts the middleman and says, Hashem uh, uh, is mechaper my avera, so to speak. And when we realize, when we think about what that means, essentially what happened is kapara becomes Slicha, right? Because biblical kapara meant, you know, a set of ritual actions by the coin on the Mizbeah. Slicha meant that God pardons the sinner. And if we look at Chazal, Chazal don't use the term slicha because it's really redundant. Because the way Chazal understand kapara is that kapara is God pardoning the sinner. Because they brought a karba, and there are other ways to get kapara as well. There's multiple paths to kapara, but even if one's using sacrificial kapara, Hashem is mechaper, the, uh, the sinner. And once, once we have that new meaning of kapara, right, where kapara doesn't mean the, the virtual actions of the Kohen on the Mizbeach, but rather the direct action, the relational move by God to atone the sinner, the term slicha becomes redundant. And that's why we see throughout Chazal, all the examples we saw, either they don't use slicha at all, or when they do use it, they're using it simply as a synonym for kapara, which is really the central term that Chazal used in its new meaning of pardoning or forgiving or atoning, right? Atoning is really a relatively uh, new term 
Um, but uh, atone comes, atonement from, comes from at one mint, right? The reconciliation, the bringing together of the parties, um, which in the case of a sin and then atonement is based, basically an example of being pardoned. Now I see there was a question. The question was, how do you do kapara for an intentional sin when you cannot offer a sacrifice for an intentional sin? So this, is, this question can be asked on multiple different levels within, uh, within the uh, biblical account, within Chazal. Uh, so uh, there's, there's different levels at which we can ask this question. I'd say the simplest answer the, the, uh, can be based on the Gemara in, in a few places, including, I think, uh, Shavuos Yudzayin. The Bavli, uh, based, representing Chazal's view, is, yeah, unintentional sins, there are specific sacrifices one can bring, a Chathas, in some cases, in Asham. But, uh, but for an intentional sin that doesn't work, Right, only if it's shogig, not if it's mazid. Uh, what atones for mazid is the seir seir the scapegoat, right? The seir lazazel that atones for all sins. Uh, the Gemara even says explicitly, shogig bein shogig bein mazid bein onus bein ratzon, everything. All sins are forgiven by the seir mishdaleach. Now there's a whole other shear as to why that is and how that works, but that's for another time. Um, but uh, but for our purposes, we're focusing on the classical process of a carbon chatas and how that works. But I think a lot of what we're saying applies more generally. Certainly Chazal's usage of the terms uh, kapar and slicha is consistent, uh, consistent throughout. Um, so uh, yeah, so I, I see another question. Why drop the term slicha and shift the meaning of kapara instead of just dropping slicha? So it's a fair question, right? A little unusual. Um, we'll see, we'll see in a minute that even though the term slicha does not appear much in rabbinic discussion of sacrifice, it does appear in rabbinic discussion of liturgy, of davening. So it's hard to know for sure um, what caused what. And, and it's also hard to know how, you know, like languages develop over time. Is it conscious? Is it subconscious? Is it, you know, a little bit of both? It's hard to pin that down. Um, so maybe this wasn't like, you know, they like had a meeting. They're like, okay, we now stipulate the definition of slicha will be X and kapara will be Y. It's more of a process that happened over time. But we'll see. Uh, it's not like slicha disappears completely. Slicha does disappear from discussions of sacrifice, but it reappears and uh, with a vengeance, that's maybe not the right term for slicha, um, but uh, with, a, uh, with a conciliatory vengeance, it appears in the context of tefillah, in the context of liturgy. And that's what we're going to look at in a minute. But first, if there's any other questions uh, or comments or thoughts, Not all at once. Um, okay, again, maybe uh, maybe because all were super clear. Kayla, do you have a question from the internet? No, no, but anyone who's watching on Facebook Live, feel free to drop 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 a question. We want to hear you. Yeah, sure. But if not, uh, if not, we'll move forward, and uh, people feel free to to jump in uh, after. Um, so let's look now at at what happens in the context of liturgy of tefillah, and. Uh, as we know, I mean, I think if, uh, you know, for those who, for those who daven, you, you get a, a feel that slicha comes up a fair amount. So look, source 19, and instead of quoting our contemporary prayer book, I'm going to quote from some, you know, some of the earliest texts that, that basically formed our prayer book as it is. So Seder of Amramgon, one of the earliest sources for, you know, our organized, uh, you know, Siddur, the way we have it, it's where the Siddur comes from, Siddur, Seder, same idea. So slach lanu avinu, kichatanu, mechal lanu alkenu. Slightly different than, uh, than I think most, most uh, editions of our prayer, but more or less the same idea. Right? This is the bracha of slicha, the whole 
bracha, this whole blessing in the Shemon Esra is all about, Slicha is all about being pardoned. The request is, right? Please pardon us, O Father. And at the end, blessed are you, O Lord, Chanun, merciful one, Hamarbet, Lislach, right, who, uh, who forgives, who pardons greatly. So that's, right, that's every day, three times a day, Slach uh, Lanu. And the Gemara talks about this bracha of Slicha, and it actually gives some of the, uh, some of the biblical precursors for it, right? It's part of sort of a, a interesting discussion of why the order is as it is, why tshuva and then bina, v'shava refalo, then why, uh, why is, uh, why not say refuah before tshuva? No, because we say v'yashov el Hashem v'irachamehu v'el elokeinu ki arbe l'sloach. We want to have, uh, we want to have tshuva first, um, where we want to have, we, right, we want to have tshuva first and then slicha, right? As, as we have in our Siddur. First the bracha of tshuva and then the bracha of slicha. Where do we get this from? Ki arbe l'sloach, as we have in Yeshayahu. So this idea of returning to God and then God forgiving this process of tshuva leading to slicha, that the Gemara already enshrines this two-stage process. And then continuation there, it says, uh, right, uh, why go in this order, not the other order? It's, uh, it says, a different verse says, hasoleach. God who forgives all your sins and who heals all your diseases. You know, the discussion uh, goes on there. But what's clear is when, when Chazal, right? It's clear from the Gemara already. This is before uh, Seder of Amrigon that there, there was this order of the Shemon Esri that, that uh, parallels our order. And it's clear there's this bracha of slicha that's patterned after these biblical passages. Um, and... Uh, and we can just look now, uh, I think partially to answer this question before of like, why did it work? And again, I'm not sure how conscious this was, but why did, why did things come out that, uh, that kapara takes over in terms of karbanos and slicha takes over in terms of prayer? I think a good part of the reason is that slicha just is so prevalent within biblical prayer that when you're modeling contemporary prayer as it gets formalized over time, uh, you, you're going to model it after biblical Cases. So here's a whole smorgasbord of a lot of cases involving slicha in the context of prayer, many of which are, are uh, you know, especially time, uh, time pertinent this time of year. As we saw before, Moshe asks that God please pardon the iniquity and sin. Um, Right, and this this is read, uh, you know, this is read on every every uh, public fast day, and it's a, it's a central a uh, central idea. Next, another another time where Moshe is praying. Um, this is Yugim Omidos, or a version of it. Etc. Right, God, you're so merciful in all these ways. Right, please pardon the sin of this nation uh, as corresponds to your great. Uh, mercy, and you took them out of Egypt, by Yomar Hashem, salachti kidvarecha, right? Hashem says, I've pardoned as you asked. Again, this, this, uh, throughout the Amin Orayim, throughout Slichos, right? Slachna lavonamazeh kigodel chastecha, right? By Yomar Hashem, salachti kidvarecha. This is a central, a central theme, uh, throughout, throughout, uh, throughout uh, our prayers. And of course, there's a reason why it's called Slichos, right? This is the central part of it, because the pardoning, uh, is, uh, is what we're all hoping for. On the Aminorayim. Also comes up in Shir Hamalos, the important Shir Hamalos that we add during a series of right? The pardoning for uh, forgiveness is yours. Um, 
Again, another line that appears in Slichos Hashem Shema, Hashem Slacha, Hashem Akshiva, Asel Ta'achar, etc. So we see again and again, there are these important biblical passages about Slicha, and maybe this went a long way in uh, to shaping our prayer, both daily prayer and the prayers of the Yamim Noraim. We'll see some specific examples from the prayers for the Yamim Noraim that incorporate this idea of Slicha as well. Um, and so let's, yeah, so let's let's look at this. We'll see the, the central bracha on Yom Kippur, right? Musaf on Yom Kippur, the most Yom Kippur, uh, the most Yom Kippur davening, and the middle bracha, the fourth bracha, meaning the, the new bracha, meaning this is the most Yom Kippur-ik uh, bracha of all brachas. What do you say in it? And we'll see two different views that have a very interesting difference that sheds light on our issue. So this is Masechtos Kitanos, probably uh, redacted around the, sixth, the eighth century, Masechah Sofrim, and this is their bracha, Yom Kippurim, Vichosim, this is the end of the bracha, the main bracha on Yom Kippur. What do you say? Right, uh, uh, sorry, I, I added the word melech, but uh, um, right, probably they don't have melech. Mochel, right, God who, who uh, mochel, we'll talk about that more next time, who forgoes or forgives, v'soleach, and pardons our sins, amo Yisrael and the sins of his nation, Israel, with mercy, umechaper al pishehem, and atones for their uh, violations, melech king of the king of the world, of uh, Israel, who sanctifies Israel, Yom Kippur, holidays, and Mikrei Kodesh. You'll notice a little different than our bracha, because our bracha follows not the Mesechus Kitanos, but the Siddur of Amram Gom, which is right here. And what does he have? Again, you know, uh, starting from a bit earlier, where you are the great forgiver to Israel, the great partner, the great forgiver for the tribes of Jeshurun, your word is truth. Other than you, we have no king who pardons and who forgives and pardons. Pretty similar to this point to what we saw before. And removes our sins every year. King of the, of the land who sanctifies Israel and the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. What is missing from this bracha? In Seder of Armagon, that is in the Masechus Kitanos, is not in Seder of Armagon, is not in our, is not in our Machzorim either, that you would think belongs in a prayer on Yom Kippur. So what's missing here is, right, thank you, Ozzy, Kapara. Right, what we see in the second council said, right? You, God, atone for their sins. It's Yom Kippur. What happens in Yom Kippur? Kapara. What's missing? This is the most important, most Yom Kippur uh, like, uh, Yom Kippur centric bracha that you say in Yom Kippur, right? It's Musaf, the main davening. It's the middle bracha, the relevant bracha. This is the bracha. And what do you say? There is not a word in Seder Ramagal, there's not a word about Kapara. Hashem is Mochel and Soleach, Mochel and Soleach. Ma'avir Ashmosenu, right, remove sins. Doesn't say, the only time it says Kippur is when we're talking about the day. Today's Yom Kippur. What makes it Yom Kippur? We don't even mention Kapara at all. So this just goes to show, at least in, in you know, our version of the text, following Siddur of Amrangon, as uh, Kali Yisrael tends to do, it shows the point to which Kapara has really migrated out of davening to a very large degree. And, and Slicha has really taken over, right? When we, when we look at davening, it's Slicha and Mechila, which itself uh, you know, is uh, maybe homework. Uh, someone look up where Mechila comes up 
in, uh, in, in Tanakh. And let me know next time. Um, but, uh, but Slicha, Slicha takes over along with Mechila in the context of prayer. And Kapara takes over in the context of discussion of sacrifice. But at the end of the day, they're synonyms. At the end of the day, they both mean the same thing. They both mean a divine pardon to us for our sin. And precisely because they come to mean the same thing, it's repetitive to say both. And that's why there's this division of labor. Not that, not between two different meanings, but between two different contexts. Kapara, for when you talk about sacrifices, and it has a different valence of what it means biblically. And slicha, for when you're discussing prayer. Why? Because, you know, again, I don't know how conscious this is, but slicha is, is such an important theme in biblical prayer, it has to stay there. And kapara is such a central theme in biblical sacrifice that it has to stay there, despite the fact that the role it plays in biblical sacrifice is actually different, uh, you know, in emphasis and in focus than what it plays in, in Chazal. Just throw in one more, this, the Yerushalmi, but this is not our practice, but the Yerushalmi says, what's the bracha for Rosh Hashanah, for uh, the, the unique bracha on Rosh Hashanah? It's a question of whether it's the fourth or the third, um, but what do you say? It's Rav Yaakov bar Acha, Rav Zeira, Hanin bar Ba, B'Shem Rav. So here's what you say, Tzarek Lomar, the following. Hakel HaKadosh, Right, this is the third bracha. On the view that the third bracha is the one with all the special stuff, Hakel Kadosh, Rabba B'shem Rav Abba Barachuna Tzarek Lomar Hakel Kadosh Umar Be Lisloach. Then not only on Yom Kippur but on Rosh Hashanah as well, you throw in this idea of slicha, right? That God uh, forgives muchly, forgives greatly. That's an important part of of Shmonesra and Rosh Hashanah as well, just like Yom Kippur. Um, and of course, you know, in our Sidur, maybe we don't have this bracha exactly, but the theme of, of Slicha certainly comes up to one degree or other uh, throughout uh, all of the Aserasi Mechuba. So I think I'm open for questions now. We have a few minutes for questions. Uh, there's a lot more to say here, but uh, yeah, why don't we take questions first? And I'm happy to summarize and, and reinforce things uh, after that, or if we don't have, uh, or if we don't have questions. How about the phrase, slach lanu, michal lanu, kaperlan? Okay, so that, that phrase is, uh, is uh, that's from the, the introduction to the ki anu amecha, uh, right, piyot. So that's relatively late, meaning, um, you know, the, what, what I was focusing on is sort of the classical structures of prayer, right, which come from Chazal, although we don't, Chazal don't mention everything, as it's, as it's solidified primarily in Seder of Amangon, and we have other sources. So in terms of the core texts, it's not there. The, the phrase, uh, you know, uh, if you skip that piyot, you know, there's no, you didn't miss any. I mean, again, spiritually, maybe you missed something. Maybe it's a minute that you missed. But in terms of the core, uh, the core liturgy of, of uh, Yom Kippur, it's not really necessary. It's, a, it's, you know, it's a later edition. It's a very nice thing. It's very inspirational. It's important. But it's not, it's not part of the core structure of prayer. So I think my, my arguments are primarily for the core structure of prayer, especially what we were just looking at, like the language of the bracha. That you can't really you can't really mess with that, right? That's you have to. The reason why they have these views is because you really got to get in these themes. These themes are central, and uh, for some, the theme of kapara is central to Yom Kippur, and for some, it's not. Which I think only makes sense when you realize that slicha is the same thing as kapara, and of course, it's there just under another name. Um, yeah, but then, you know, of course, of course, if you look throughout all the different practices in liturgy and all the piyutim and all the minhagim, of course, you're going to find. Uh, you know, the language is much more varied and the things will come up. Um, one can always repent or try to repent, but forgiveness is much more of a wish. So for sure. And that's, you know, repentance, of course, is, is tshuva, as I, as I opened with. 
right? And that's why you'll notice none of these prayers are asking God for tshuva, right? Because tshuva has, we have to do the tshuva, right? So repentance, that's on us. You don't ask God for repentance. You, you do the repentance. You ask God for the forgiveness or the atonement or the uh, pardon. And again, there are different words in English. There also are different words in Hebrew. What, what's so interesting is that we're seeing that you can ask God for, at least in our central core prayers, you can ask God for slicha, for pardon, but we don't see asking God for kapara, maybe because that's really seen as a more central uh, to sacrifice idea. And of course, most ironically on Yom Kippur, um, where the, you know, the central prayer in Yom Kippur doesn't mention kapara at all in our practice following Seder of Amramadol. Other, other comments or thoughts? Okay, so just to tie things up, um, right, today we looked at the difference between, or the relationship between slicha and kapara. Biblically, they each have clear, different, clearly different roles, semantically speaking, right? Kapara is done by the Kohen on the Mizbeach, and that's sort of the, the ritual action. Slicha is hopefully what one receives from God afterwards, whether or not it's automatic, and God's name isn't even mentioned, but they're clearly distinct stages. Um, and yet, when we look at Chazal, if we're looking at Chazal on sacrifice, and, you know, which is the bulk of Chazal's discussion of these things, the term slicha disappears because the term kapara comes to mean slicha. Kapara comes to mean this personal pardon, not just the ritual act uh, of the Kohen on the Mizbeach, but God's act of forgiving and pardoning the sinner. And at the same time, slicha comes and takes over in the context of prayer at the expense of kapara, even on Yom Kippur, because slicha is you know, following all of the, the rich biblical language of, uh, you know, biblical narrative and slicha and the request for pardon from God, we, we channel that when we ask God for slicha in our prayers as well. So that's, that's what we've discussed today. Next time, we're going to look at mechila, that term, and this will, will start moving also a bit more in a philosophical direction. Um, what's the implication? Because today, right, there was no, at the end of the day, if slicha and kapara are the same thing, so there's not really a conceptual difference. But next week, we're going to think about Mechila and the conceptual implications of Mechila as compared to Kapara. And uh, so that's our plan for next week. And again, the homework is uh, tell me where Mechila comes up uh, biblically. All right. Any final questions? No cheating. No cheating. Um, uh, with the Allah Torah. That was a personal start the homework. Good. Um, uh, all right. If not, everyone should have a, a wonderful evening and uh, much success with uh, with uh, their uh, their own slicha uh, mechila and most of all. All right. Thank you, Rabbi Zuckier, for a great class, and thank you to everyone who joined us on Zoom, on Risha Live, and on Facebook. Um, we're going to continue with our L programming on Thursday night at 8 p.m. with a class with with uh, Mr. Yitz Landis on the topic of on the topic of from Slicha to Abodah, an introduction to the liter to the liturgy, to liturgical well, to, lit to the liturgical poetry of Elul and the Yamim Naraim. Um, you can you can find out more information about on this current class, as well as all of our old programming on our website at www.drisha.org slash classes. And thank you again to Rabbi Zuckier for this opportunity to keep on learning with you. And to everyone who attended, we hope to see you again soon. Have a good night. Bye, everyone. Bye.